What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. This episode is brought to you by a landlocked naval officer who needed a new hobby outside of drinking snobby IPAs. Thank you, Mark. She's very strong. Very strong, Mike. Yeah. Um, anyhow, how are you doing today, sir? I'm good. And yourself? I am not awake. Um, Imagine that. I didn't sleep. Yeah, I didn't sleep very well. And it's going to be a long day because as soon as we are done recording, I am off to go do removals. Um, and, uh, awesome point to that is that, uh, see, I can't even think to speak correctly. (laughs) A, uh, one of the, one of a a good little caveats to having to go and do the removal today is that the removal I'm doing is actually a forced abscond out of a tree. And today we're going to be doing listener questions. And one of those questions has to do with doing a forced abscond out of a tree. So that's very fitting. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, so that is what we shall do. If you're ready, I can start. I've got several pages printed off here. Um, we can go through and see what all our listeners out there would like answered. Um, we have we have one repeat offender. <laughs> we have Rachel, who's one of our listeners from uh, Australia. Mm-hmm. And she sent in three separate emails over the course of the week <laughs> with, with questions. So we've got hers uh, interdispersed throughout there. Um, first and foremost, though, before we get started, let's go through and give a thank you to our newest patron, Andre G. Thank you so much for joining us out there on Patreon. We greatly appreciate it. And then uh, just one last little side note before we actually dive into these questions have you seen the Lego hive online anywhere on social media where the, the gentleman built the hive completely out of Legos? No. Does he have bees in it? Yep. He put bees in it. Um, there's a, there's a YouTube video out there, but I, I've seen it. We had multiple listeners share it with us on mainly on Facebook. Um, so if you go out there and just do a search for Lego beehive, I'm sure you will find it. But it is uh, it is pretty interesting. He he built it literally out of just individual little Lego blocks, and then made it all you know multicolored and decorative and stuff. And then he went ahead and installed a colony of bees in it. So it's a pretty nifty looking little thing. Um, definitely would have been something for somebody to do, you know, right now whenever we're in quarantine and you didn't have anything else going on. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So. Uh... A Lego hive. Yep, a Lego hive. <laughs> That'll work. Does he have a Lego feeder too? I didn't actually look to see if there was a feeder. I don't know if there's one in there or not. He's got like this uh, little, the roof has something unique to it, which may be more like, you know, like a, a rooftop for Lego people or something. Like it, it's got some design and stuff going on up on the top of it. So, um, but yeah, anyhow, there, there's that. Oh, that worked. You get a drink of tea, and then we shall start. Well, you know what I've been doing? I've been building little top bar nukes. I really should have put the phone on mute so you didn't have to hear me slurp that really hot tea. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> it was still way hotter than I anticipated whenever I first started that drink. 
I just being mean. No, you're fine. You're fine. Okay, so you ready? Yeah. Okay, so th- this first question is going to be from Rachel, and Rachel says, "Howdy, boys. Ken's tree hive retrieval is the perfect intro for me to talk about my own misadventures." I have mentioned previously that I probably have a little bit too much in common with Ken. (laughs) As you managed to read, uh, oh, she said, John, you managed to read my mind again and answered my first Q&A questions about trap outs. So we won't be going there again. At least my friend has her letterbox back and her post is finally being delivered again. So that one was uh, from a little while back. We did mention it where she was going through and doing a, she was trying to do a forced abscond on a stone mailbox mm-hmm. and the mail had stopped being delivered because of the bees inside the mailbox. So they were trying to go through and get the bees out of there. But the forced abscond was not going too well. Um, kind of like your forced abscond did not go too well. Um, <laughs> so she says that she, she won't be doing that again. So, her next question then is, uh, do you have any do's or don't tips on forced abscond methods? Um, as that would be great because I'm planning on one in a tree in the spring. So she's got a little while before this happens, but um, we'll go through and uh, talk about that real quick because that is what I'm going to be doing today. So the forced abscond from the tree is, it, it can be, it's it's straightforward, but it is very challenging because you don't, you can't see inside the tree. Um, my thermal camera for certain cannot see inside the tree, but there, there are some that cost way up there, like thousands of dollars that almost act like x-ray vision. And they're absolutely amazing. And someday if I can ever afford it, I am going to get one. Um, we have a gentleman that we partner with that does uh, re- roofing and he has one that we used on the church removal that was uh, the three-story tall removal, had four separate colonies in the church. Uh, that that heat gun is just amazing. Like, he could shoot it clear across the actual church. So we were standing inside the cathedral, and we were at the back of the church, and he shot it clear across up to the pulpit and up in the corner. And we could see where the colony was clear across the church, but you could also see where the rafter beams were in the ceiling. You could actually denote just in the temperature changes every single beam and see exactly where it was. It was the coolest thing. Um, so yeah, hope, hope and dreams <laughs> that's on a wish list for toys for future day. Um, but anyhow, so the forced abscons out of the tree, you've got to be very careful because the tree can have cavities that go, you know, this way and that way and everywhere in there. So the process that we're going to do today or that we would do on any normal tree is when you first show up, you obviously you locate their primary entrance. Then you've got to look around and you've got to find if there are any other entrances that they could use in that tree. And that could be used as an emergency escape, which will kind of foil your removal plans, I guess I should say. So we're going to go through, we're going to look at the tree, we're going to find the entrance, we're going to look at the rest of the tree and see if we can find any other openings. And we're going to seal those off before we even start the actual removal itself. So what I'll do, if it's in a smaller branch that's not very big, I'll go ahead and put just a tiny little spray of a, it's the Fisher's Be Quick. Um, You can also use Honey Robber, Honey Bandit, but it's, uh, ours is the one that is made out of natural essential oils and such. And the, the prime thing in it is bitter almond extract. And... I will put just a little mist of that down into that hole if I find a, like a little opening somewhere in one of the limbs. 
And then I'm going to come back through there and I'm going to actually seal that hole off with a little bit of expanding spray foam. Not a lot, just a little bit. And we specifically use a type that's called pest block um, because it does kind of become a little bit denser than just the normal gap and crack sealant for the expanding spray foam. But seal off all the little entrances that could be utilized and having that little bit of that, the, uh, the be gone in there will, or the be quick in this case, um, will help deter them from wanting to go up that branch as well. Then we're going to go through and we're going to either use a flashlight or a scope and we're going to run it down inside the entrance and we're going to look and see does the cavity go down or does the cavity go up or does it do both and where is the comb located in relation to the opening of the actual tree. And once we find that out, hopefully, fingers crossed, the cavity goes down and the comb goes down and the opening is up towards the top. And in those situations, it just makes it easier because you're going to be using smoke and you're going to be using the, the fumes from these essential oils. And obviously, they're going to naturally travel upward. Well, if the opening is at the bottom of the cavity and everything is above you, then going through and putting that stuff in the bottom isn't going to really chase them out the bottom. It's going to make them want to not go down there. And if you put a hole up above the cavity and you do the smoke and you do the essential oils, it's still going to travel up into that tree cavity and it's not necessarily going to push them down. So it just makes it more challenging if the, the opening is at the bottom of the cavity. But in this scenario, we're going to hope that the cavity opening is actually above and the cavity goes down. We then go down and we try to estimate where the bottom of it is. Using the scope, I can go about three foot down inside the tree um, and kind of follow it along so long as I can keep it moving. And once we've determined where that is, we're going to go down and we're going to bore a one inch hole through the bark of the tree into that cavity. And that's the hole we're going to use to put in the essential oils and the smoke. Um, side note to all of this is before we actually start, we're going to seal off well, we're going to create almost like you do with the force of scone. We're going to create a funnel around the main entrance. So I use uh, like aluminum window screen and I staple it to the tree around the opening so that no bees can actually get out from underneath it. And then I foil that down and wrap it around the actual hose that goes down to our containment unit that's powered by the shop vac. And so now if anybody comes out the entrance, they're going to come out, they can walk down that screen, but when they hit the end of it, they just hit the hose and the hose pulls them down in there. The point of having a couple of inches between the opening and the hose is so that you don't create so much suction right there at the opening that you immediately pull all the smoke and fumes out of the cavity, thereby defeating what you were trying to create inside there for the environment to kind of chase them out. So we get that set up around the entrance, we get it hooked to the hose, we have it all hooked up, we turn on the vac so the, the containment unit starts working. We bore that hole into the bottom of the cavity, and then we do just a couple light little spritz of the essential oils again, let those fumes come up in through there, and that usually sparks quite the little initial mass migration that starts coming up, starts coming up and out that main entrance, and then you follow it up with smoke, and you just very lightly smoke that cavity almost continuously. So we'll sit there, and we'll just very gently puff on the smoke, and you'll do it, you know for a good minute or two and then you stop and you just let everything kind of settle down. And, and what it does is it creates an environment inside there that the bees think the tree's on fire. Plus you got these essential oils that make them want to run from them. So they start evacuating the cavity and you're going to get the foragers are going to come out first. And then after a little while, you'll start getting some of the nurse bees and the worker bees and stuff will start coming out. And then eventually your queen will come out 
in rare exceptions, if the queen happened to be up near the top and they're kind of runny to begin with, when you did that initial shot of stuff in there, they may all come out at once. And that's best case scenario. But usually it is a three to four hour process minimum where you're basically just standing out there puffing away at the side of a tree waiting on everybody to slowly evacuate out of there. So that's kind of the the short version. And I know that wasn't very short. That was like, shoot, that was eight minutes worth of short version. <laughs> so um, anyhow, but that is, uh, that's the four steps gone out of the tree. You haven't actually tried that method yet, have you? Kenny? Oh, no, we do a quicker version. Yeah, you hit it with a bulldozer. That's not a forced to Hit That's it with a bulldozer, <laughs> pushed it over, cut it open with a with an axe, and took them out. No, we didn't even take them out. They moved into a box that we set up right there. Well, that was that was a few days later, <laughs> but yes, they did eventually get into your box. <laughs> so Rachel goes on and says that she did catch or retrieve. Um, she's not going to call it a rescue because. I'm sure that they were quite happy where they already were, but um, likely to get bulldozed, much like Ken's tree did. So, see, there was a great segue for that. Um, she did say that she missed the queen as she had ducked into the upholstery of another couch that had been out there that she hadn't noticed had been previously a home for bees. Um, but I got a stack of brood and eggs, etc., installed into rescue frames made per your instructions. And uh, we also tried the rubber band method just as comparison, and you're right, they suck. <laughs> the, the colony ended up making some emergency queen cells, which was a great learning experience to watch, although I did struggle to only leave just two. Um, I cut out the small ones but ended up leaving four because I couldn't decide amongst them. So doing my bee math, Her Highness should have hatched around May 3rd, and maybe looking for stray drones that following weekend around the 10th, which is autumn here. We had a few days of miserable weather, but then it has been cold at night, which is down to 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. But during the day, it reaches between 20 and 25 Celsius, which is 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So my next question is, in that sort of climate, what were her chances of still finding a bloke, about 15 or so blokes, out and about this time of year, do they all definitely get bumped off in the winter for temperate zones? Um, so for us, they they really don't start like hardcore pushing the drones out until, and I know this doesn't work for you guys because it's uh, the seasons are completely flip-flop, but for us, it's usually late October into November, but it also depends on the nectar flow and everything else. It's usually when the nectar flow stops um, that the bees are like, okay, you guys got to go. And they start kicking them out. But we have successfully raised bees here in early October and the, the, or Queens anyway. And there are usually still drones out there, but the, the best way to tell it is going to be, you know, if you have colonies that have drones, watch that colony. And when you see the colony starts kicking the drones out or there's no more drones in there, then no, there's probably not. But if it's still getting up into the 70s and 80s or, or 25 to 20, 20 to 25 degrees Celsius during the day, um, there's probably likely still drones out there. So she can at least get mated enough to make it through the winter. And then in the spring, if you decide that her laying pattern is not that good or there are signs that she wasn't fully, fully mated, you can always replace her at that time if needed. Uh, let's see, her her plan um, is to have a look in a couple of weeks when we get a nice warm enough day to see if there's any brood. And then so the second question is, does an unmated queen lay drones or does she lay nothing at all? 
she actually will lay drones. So if she, say she never gets to leave the colony and she never goes mates, there is a finite little window there and then her natural drive will kick in and she will go through and start laying eggs, but those eggs will all be drones. So that's what you call a drone laying queen. And it can happen because she's not mated at all, or maybe she only mates with one or two drones. And so then she kind of misfires where you start having, there's worker brood, but then you start having drones that pop up in the worker brood, and then it becomes more and more drones. That's usually a failing queen that wasn't properly mated, and she's becoming a drone layer. So, but yeah, they will actually lay drones. So you will still see single eggs in the cells, and you will see, still see brood, but it will ultimately end up being drone brood if she's not mated. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Um, she says, just to close out this first email here after, of hers, after the couch episode, I vowed that I will never again try without a BVAC and generator. I have made my own BVAC and it worked on getting some of the bees from a log. So the next tip that I learned the hard way is take your own chainsaw. <laughs> but it has been fun trying and my friend's father that has Alzheimer's is now safe when going out to get his firewood for the winter. So I keep reminding myself, there are no such thing as free bees. There are no such thing as free bees. There are no such thing as free bees. <laughs> keep up the good work, guys. Love the show. Rachel. <laughs> well. So I don't know if you uh, if you go back, the very first email that Rachel ever sent us was the one that had all the pictures about how we do it in Australia. And she had the, the giant lobster and the giant, um, I don't remember what it was called, that one giant redfish and was talking about how the girls were out doing the boys on the fishing trip. Mm -hmm. um, that's Rachel, just to, to put it into perspective for you. Okay. <laughs> well, it sounds like she does a whole lot the same thing as me and you do, only she's probably more sober like me. I got to go do a rescue out of a water meter box uh, Monday or Tuesday uh, this next week, and uh, first this next week, and... I made top bar nukes to, since you convinced me that top bars are work better than Langstroth's to put uh, rescues in, and the pa the the ones that we have used with the small top bar nukes, they do like it better and they stay in them better. We've lost them out of Langstroth's, and so we use the top bars now. Yeah, they um, it so when I first started. I had maybe, if I was lucky, a 50% success rate when I tried to do a removal into a Langstroth box. And, you know, it didn't matter which method I used to try to go through and put that comb in there. They just didn't like it. And they didn't want to stay. But when I would do the removal and I would put them on the rescue bars and put them into a top bar hive, my success rate went up into like 95 percentile. It was insane. Where every removal we do they pretty much, they stay in the colony. Sometimes they they fail because we've had uh, some instances where we've gone through and we've put them in the colony and then they end up clogging the entrance and then kind of suffocating and dying because we, we don't get back out there to check that specific colony quick enough and don't catch it, you know, when it's something that can be still fixed. But, um, but ultimately though, you know, as far as absconding goes, the absconsion rate is far lower whenever I've used the, the rescue bars on a top bar as opposed to a Langstroth. So it's really kind of interesting how that works. But, um, 
it does for whatever reason. It just seems to be better on the bees doing the removal that way. Yep, and uh, we have a top bar that we had take eggs and larvae out of the other top bar, move over there because uh, uh, Scratch Queen either died in the box or they killed her. We're not sure, but we they uh, they're gonna raise their own queen now. So we can talk. <laughs> Rachel will be telling you about that next time. He's reading. Yeah, I was pre-reading ahead. Um, okay, so. On to the next question. This one comes from Dee Dee, and it is about slatted racks. So she says, have you ever used or experienced a 10-frame slatted rack? Are there pros or cons to using them? In my two years of beekeeping, I am just hearing about them a week ago, so I thought I would ask. Do you know what she's talking about? I've seen pictures of them. I have never used one. I have never seen one. So basically it does the same thing in summer as it does winter. Um, but what it is, is um, it, it is the same dimensions as your bottom board or like an inner cover, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And then it's got slats that run along the framework of it across the center. And those slats mimic the frames. And so if it's in a 10 frame or an eight frame box, whichever one you specifically are using and buy, you put the slatted rack above. So you, if you deconstructed your hive, you would have your bottom board. Then you would put the slatted rack. Then you would put your box with the frames. So the slatted rack goes on the bottom. And what it does is it provides a dead air space um, from the entrance in the bottom cavity of the hive that allows a little bit better air control. So back when you were talking about wanting to do the screen bottoms, Mm -hmm. when you go through and you have a screen bottom on a hive, you'll notice that the bees will stop laying brood and raising brood in the bottom couple of inches of the frames in that bottom box because there's too much airflow, they can't control it, and they so they move the brood up higher to be able to have better control over heating and cooling the brood without all that open air down there causing an issue. So the slatted rack kind of helps mitigate that and and does the same thing. You can use it, you know, with the screen bottom or with not, but the slats themselves are basically occupying bee space so that it's not a void of space below there that the bees will want to draw comb on. Um, It acts as, as a little barrier between there that gives them bee space to go above and below it and up between it, but it allows the hive to then be a couple inches higher and it provides a dead air space below the bottom of the lowest frames so that the bees can therefore control the airflow, the temperature and the humidity and everything better. So in the spring, it helps them keep the, the brood cooler at the bottom of the box. And then in the winter, it helps them mitigate the cold that's coming in and helps keep the brood warmer or help keeps the colony warmer because it does provide that little bit of dead air space. But they are literally just a, a beekeeping option. Um, they're not required. You can obviously use beekeeping as you have done. You know, Dee said that she's been doing it for two years now. Um, you can get by just fine without them. It's one of those nifty little things that if you're doing Langstroth beekeeping, there's a thousand and one different gadgets and options that you can buy to fit your preference. Um, but I would say that it would come in a little bit more handy probably with a screened bottom than it would with a solid bottom. But otherwise, there is not really any pros or cons either way that that greatly greatly outweigh one or the other i really can't talk this morning (laughs) 
<laughs> See what no sleep does? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so so that's kind of the whole deal on a slatted rack. Um, if you want to try it out, go for it. It's not going to hurt anything. Worst case scenario is they may do like they do between the, like if you have two boxes stacked between the top of the bottom frames and the bottom of the top frames, sometimes they'll draw burr comb in there. They may try to do something like that. Um, but otherwise, no, there is no, uh, no major disadvantages to having it. Uh, okay. So our next question comes from Heather and Heather's question. The subject of this one is queen excluders. And she says, hi, John and Ken. I hope you guys are doing well and received a good soaking over the weekend. My question for you is about the use of queen excluders. I've heard many different options and opinions, and I'm curious if you use them. If so, do you find them advantageous in certain circumstances? Example, cut out comb for honey supers, getting the workers to draw frames laterally before moving up, etc. Um, do they actually damage the workers' wings as they pass through the slats? Question mark. Do they encourage swarming? Question mark. Thanks again for the show. Looking forward to it every Monday. Hope you have a buzzy week, Heather. Okay, so queen excluders, my general rule of thumb is we don't use them. And that's mainly because I don't really want to keep my queen, you know, reliquated or or sequestered or trapped to one box. Um, I want her to be able to leave and go wherever she wants to throughout the colony. And the the purpose for that on my stance is that if you go through and you've got a single box and that's the only box she can lay in versus three boxes and she can lay in all three of them, the colony that has those three boxes open is going to end up with far more workers than the box that just has the single box. Because if she goes through and lays in every one of those frames, then she's got to wait for those frames to then hatch out and open up those cells before she can come back and lay again. Whereas in the other colony, she can go through and and move up into the next box and keep laying and repeat that process. And you'll end up with more workers overall, which means the more workers you have, the more potential for a honey harvest you're going to have. Now, we do use them in two specific circumstances. The very first circumstance is if you are installing a swarm or installing a package We will put the bottom board down, then we will put the queen excluder over the top of the bottom board, then our box and our frames, and we will dump the bees into the box, and then we'll put the inner cover on the top and the lid on there and make sure they have no upper entrances, so their only option is to go down through the queen excluder and out, which means the queen is then trapped, so if it is a swarm, she can't get out, even though they may immediately want to rush out of that colony she can't leave. And so when they do, they're going to go through, take roll call, realize she's not there and they will come back. And they may do that two or three times before they finally give up and decide to stay. So that's the one purpose. The other purpose is for, as you actually mentioned in here, Heather, for cut comb honey. Now, if you are wanting specifically to have cut comb honey, meaning you're going to leave the honey in the comb and either sell it or give it away as gifts, you want that comb to be fresh, beautiful, brand new white beeswax. And to do that, you have to make sure that there's never been any brood laid in there and no larvae that have ever developed and pupated in there because that's what makes the brood or the wax itself get darker is the brood and the pupation cycle. They leave that chrysalis of their cocoon inside there and that builds up every time they do it. So we'll go through and we will put it on. We've got some special frames also that are... um, They're called permacomb. They're solid plastic and they're already fully drawn out and they're made just for a honey super. 
And so we will put it below any boxes that contain that so that the queen can't lay in those because we have no way of ever cleaning them back out or, or recycling that out of there. Um, and we'll put it below when we're doing um, the special shapes of cut comb that are already designed inside the frames. And then also any of the free hanging comb um, in like a foundationless frame, we'll put a queen excluder below that. That way they will go up, they'll draw it out, and then we know that it's just going to be honey. Um, but we don't use it for any other purposes. We don't use it like the commercial beekeepers where they don't want there to potentially be brood in their honey super because on X day they have to go harvest and they don't have a choice. And if it's capped, it's capped. If it's not, it's not. They don't want brood in that process messing that up. Well, you know, from our perspective, we don't have that timeline. So if I go into a honey super and I find a small patch of brood, I know that it's just not time to harvest that honey yet. Give it another week or so, that brood will hatch out. Once it does, they're going to backfill it with nectar, and then they'll process that nectar down into honey, and then I'll have a solid frame of capped honey, and then I can go harvest that box. So that's kind of how I look at that. Um, the last little part there was about damaging the worker's wings. It depends on the type of excluder. I have seen on some of the plastic ones, the edges can be a little bit sharp. And it can kind of tatter up the wings of the bees. On the metal ones and on the bamboo ones, they're round and they're smooth. And so it doesn't seem to cause as much of an issue. Um, but I've not ever noticed it be so bad that it's detrimental. Because the bees themselves, the more they fly and the more they work and the more they forage, their wings naturally get tattered on their own. So it's really kind of hard to determine, is it the queen excluder doing that or is it just the bee itself? Um, a lot of times it is usually just the bee. <laughs> so, okay, uh, let's see. You have any input on that one before I move to the next one, Mr. Ken? Only thing, if you lose the little round, you know, the round, well, they're not excluders. That's just an entrance. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, the thing you put on there and turn them to like for a newt box or a top bar and when they go through that slot a lot of times it knocks that's what you don't like about it, it knocks the pollen off it can yes um the the excluder that we use on the front depending on which one it is that that metal flat one i have noticed that 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 is a bigger thing really than um than like the wings themselves is they, when they come in with their pollen patties on their legs, a lot of times the excluders, depending on what they are, if they've got those sharper edges, be it an entrance disc excluder, or if it is the, the excluder inside the colony, it will pop the pollen off of the bee's legs. Now, if it is a excluder inside the colony separating a honey super from the brood nest, the good thing is usually the pollen goes into the brood nest. So that's not usually too much of an issue. Um, but yes, that is correct. The The pollen popping off of the legs on a lot of those entrance discs does actually irritate me for sure. Okay, next question. Uh, this one, we're back to Rachel. She says, more cues for the Q&A. Um, when and how to rotate out old frames in a Langstroth box? Various sources suggest that you should get the old comb out every three to five years, um, which equals two a year or more. Is there a trick to how or when you remove the old frames as to not waste brood? And then she has a little story that goes in here. She says, I had two old frames that I scrounged plus, I think, three to four rescue bars with variable amounts of comb from the couch that had a good amount of brood in it. We did this early in the autumn, 
and we made a new queen, and she appears to have managed to find some end-of-the-season drones around. So now we have a follow-up from the past one. Her queen did get mated, um, and there's now capped brood in the box. Yay! We plan to overwinter and just keep feeding them and see what we have to start the spring with and how well that she's laying. So I really, my aim is to get the rescue bars out first, as they are definitely not as tidy as your demo ones. <laughs> if things are going well in terms of rebuilding new comb on wax foundation, then maybe get the old frames replaced as well. They have built some new comb to fill in the gaps on the rescue bars, but it's pretty much winter, so I don't expect any real comb activity and building to be done. Um, but I want to have a game plan in mind. Thank you so much for your tips. Much appreciated, Rachel. Okay, so I think actually, let me look here real quick, because I want to say... Somewhere in here is another question about comb, maybe. Going through the papers. Well, maybe not. I want to say that there was another listener that did ask a question about comb. So um, if I did not get that in there, then this will answer that. But if I did, then uh, we're good to go. So... Basically, yes, the, the three to four or three to five years, five years is kind of the maximum that you want to keep comb inside of a colony because by that point, it looks like a Michelin tire. It is just pure black and basically like rubber, and uh, it's it's not very good. So by that point, you definitely want to get it out of there. Now, what you can do is you can do kind of like a top bar where you start a rotation cycle, and you go through and you put in... Every season, you're putting in one or two new frames and pick a side of your box and stick with that. So you'll take, you know, two frames out of the far left and you're going to put two brand new frames into the far right. And if you continue that cycle every year, you're slowly going to be pushing the old comb over to the left side where you're taking it out and you're going to be adding new comb every year to the right side. So it's slowly going to cycle across that box just like we cycle kind of through a top bar hive. So that's one way that you can do it. Another way that you can do it is you can rotate the box that has the oldest comb and move it to the very top of your stack because the bees are going to backfill. So if you move it to the very top, they're going to go through there. They're going to fill it with nectar, cap it off with capped honey, and then you can remove that entire box to go through and do your honey extraction. And after you've extracted the honey, get rid of the frames and get rid of the comb. Um, when it comes to getting rid of it, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. You can go through and actually, if it's got like a solid foundation, like a plastic foundation underneath it, you can go through and take your hive tool that has the curved end to it and press it down in there and just scrape all of that wax off there. It's a little bit challenging, but you can scrape the wax all the way back down to the plastic foundation and then power wash the foundation. Um, if the foundation has a lot of pollen in it, sometimes you won't be able to get that out of there. That's where the power washing comes in. But if you if you do all of this and you still are like, oh, there's just there, it's just grody or it's too much, you can pop the foundation out of the frame entirely and just put a new foundation in the frame. But if the frame itself is old and rickety and torn up and stuff as well, then it's probably best just to replace the entire thing and not necessarily go through all the hassle to try to, you know, make the new. Um, if you're using a foundationless frame, then it's even easier because you just do a cut and strain. So you cut the comb completely out of the center of it crush and strain all the, the honey out of it and then melt down the wax if you want to or toss it out and then just put that frame right back in there and they'll go through and they'll build out a brand new sheet of comb 
in the middle of that foundationless frame. So that's one of the, the ways that you can go through and do that. Um, okay, so thank you, Rachel. Moving on, our next question is coming from Alex. And uh, Alex got this one in just under the wire. This one came in late last night. Um, or sorry, I got it late last night. He sent it yesterday afternoon. But it says, Hey guys, Alex here in Austin. I've just started my third year of beekeeping with just one Langstroth hive. I've learned tons, but I still feel like I have so far to go. So a few quick questions. I installed my current queen in August of 2018, gotten from Bee Weaver. She seems to be laying fine, assuming she's the same one, that is, um, as her dot has either completely worn off or she's been superseded. I hear that some people requeen every year or every two years. So if she seems to be laying okay, should I leave her be? If I should requeen this year, when is the ideal to time to do that? Oh, actually, and Alex is the one that was asking about the comb because that's the second question. So, um, okay, so on your first question, Alex, the the age of the queen, like usually if the queen was originally marked and you go through and you look at her thorax, you can usually still see little flakes or hints of paint that almost make a halo around the back of the thorax. If you don't see that at all and it's beautiful and shiny and smooth, um, she very well may not be your same queen. Keep in mind that colonies left to their own devices, absolutely will swarm at least once a year. And when they do that, your queen is gone. So it may not even be that she was superseded. Um, they may have swarmed and you may have missed it. And they may have raised a new queen. Now, they could have potentially superseded her as well, or they may eventually supersede her or uh, raise a new queen to replace her as she ages on. But I've had a queen make it up to five years, and the last two years of that, I kept moving her over and using her as a breeding queen and as a queen to go through and raise little small nukes. So she stayed in smaller colonies, which made it easier for her pheromone output to manage the colony. Um, but she made it up to the five year mark, you know, before I finally was like, OK, um, so they can definitely make it. But there's there's two reasons for the requeening every year. If they requeen every year, they are hedging their bets on reducing the swarming aspect because you have a very young, very virulent queen in there with a lot of pheromones that will go through and lay you a ton of eggs, but have enough pheromone output that it's likely that colony won't swarm that year. Now, the second year, they probably will. Requeening every two years just kind of helps go through and keep your genetics in check. But ultimately, if the queen is still laying a decent pattern and you still are happy with the behavior and temperament of your bees and the output of the bees, then there's not necessarily any reason to go through and requeen them. They're perfectly fine with what they've got. They've been doing great with it, so why mess with it? Um, now then, the uh, the last part of his question, just to make sure I answered all of it here. He said, I've also heard that your brood frames, um, once they are a certain age, you should remove them and put in fresh ones. Is there a rule of thumb about when and how to do that? Um, or do you just wait till the comb is really super dark looking? And when you get to that point, what is the process of swapping them out without disrupting the brood cycle? So that was mainly answered, I believe, in uh, Heather's question there prior. But the, the last little part of that, though, the brood cycle is if you if you move it up to the top box, then if it isn't a Langstroth style box, if you move it up to the top, then as that brood hatches out, they will backfill that with nectar. So that will take care of the brood problem for you. If you're doing the cycle in the bottom box, then usually coming out of winter, all of the bees are in your top box anyway. So it's real easy to go through and cycle those combs in the bottom box and not necessarily have any brood down in there. And if you're doing it right out of winter before they've really ramped up their brood production, 
then there's usually not any brood production going on. So therefore you can replace frames easier. So I would say right at the beginning of your beekeeping season, it, end of winter, beginning of spring is kind of the best time to go through and do that. All right, we're running short on time and I still have a couple of pages here. So we'll see if we can burn through these real quick. Uh, looks like I've got just a couple more pages. <laughs> All right, so um, this one is from Kristen and Kristen has, she said that I could go through and actually just do the questions, but there's a little bit of a brief backstory here. Um, and this one could be a little bit tricky and, uh, and complicated. So Kristen says that I thought I remembered you mentioning that you could install a nuke into a top bar hive, but then I couldn't figure out which episode that might've been on. So I did the bad thing and I Googled it. I originally intended to chop the frames down to fit inside the top bar hive, but I chickened out and decided to install them long ways with some modification rails to hold up the laying frames. So she has a top bar mm -hmm. and instead of having the bars go across from side to side, she has put up a support structure in there so that they go from the end long ways down facing the other end and they're held up in the center, which means they'll go out. It'll almost be kind of like some of the nukes where it'll it'll only hold four or five going long ways. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you kind of get to where that slant on the edge of the top bar is. And then that's that. Um, so the previous owner of the hive had one bar of empty comb left from previous bees. And I know that you warned against using old comb, but it looked relatively clean, and the previous owner said that it had set empty for at least a year. So I put this directly next to the end of the frames in an effort to encourage the bees to eventually start building the comb in that direction. During my first inspection, I noticed a few things. Despite a lot of rain, they had managed to get some nectar into the laying frames, and I couldn't find the queen, but I did find her later on and took a photo of her, which I have attached. Um, there was also lots of squealing and excitement when I found the queen. They hadn't started using the new comb, but they had started building off of a scrap piece of cedar that I had left next to the laying frames. I decided to modify the top bars with popsicle sticks and painter's tape so that hopefully they would build on those, and then I could move those bars back whenever um, to the position that I actually wanted the bees to build in. Lastly, I noticed that the feeder I saw on YouTube, yeah, I know, um, it killed a hundred of my girls and this made me very, very sad. Um, I have attached a photo of the poor things after I'd already punished the ramp by tearing it off. Okay. So I wanted to leave them food. So I slightly modified it so that they won't get stranded and drown. Um, I watched a few successful use it before closing up the hive. Obviously I don't want to continue using this feeder as it might kill the girls further. So if you can send me a link to the mason jar excuse me, mason jar feeder of your choice, that would be great. Okay, monologue over, here's the questions. Did I doom my bees forever by installing them in the incorrect order inside the top bar by installing them long ways? Should I remove the old comb that they have decided not to use or just be patient? Should I put a board in the bottom of the hive or leave it as a screened bottom? There were five entrance holes. I left one open after installation, but later decided to block... Oh, sorry, I left a few open after installation, but later decide to block all of the ones that they weren't using. Should I force them to use the one near the middle of the hive or continue to let them use the one near the laying frames on the end that they prefer? And lastly, isn't my queen just the most beautiful queen you've ever seen? I sure think so. <laughs> so, um, 
you definitely have given yourself a challenge by installing them the long way. They're going to want to build in the direction that their comb is going, and you've got the comb going long way down the center of the hive. So yes, it is going to be a challenge to try to sway them from that. Um, but if you leave that other comb at the end, there is, it, it, they're going to basically, they're going to fill up that space side to side before they move over to that other one. Now, if you put a bar or something in there and let them start building on it and then move it and put it at the end, but keep scooting that older comb back every time you do that, you will eventually start moving brood and food and things over in that direction and they will start working it. It's going to be, you know, a challenge both for you and the bees, but they will do it because when we do the removals, we find bees in all kinds of bizarre structures and, you know, the comb may start on one level and then jump over and go around a corner and it'll change directions and, you know, they, they build it to shape the fit of whatever they're in. So they are going to keep continuing to try to draw out on the sides of the laying frames. But if you have a bar there that they can start building on and then you move it and you put it at the end and put it in the right orientation it should actually end up being okay and, and it should work out for you. Um, the bottom board is going to be really kind of up to you. What it needs to be ultimately is both so that if you want to have it opened and have a screen bottom, you can do so, but it needs to be able to be closed up in the wintertime. For me specifically, I find that the bees actually seem to do better um, with a solid enclosed space because they can go through and they can regulate that temperature and they can do what they want. If the entire bottom is open, then they're at the mercy of mother nature and the wind and, and they have to try harder to maintain that internal temperature. So sealing it up is my preferred thing. Um, but you can have it to where it's open during the hardest part, the hottest part of the year, and then close it up during uh, wintertime when it's the coldest part of the year. And then as far as the feeders, what I usually use is just the Boardman feeder. If you look up Boardman entrance feeder for a Langstroth frame hive, the one that actually fits in the front entrance of the hive, that's usually what we use because it's just the inverted jar. It'll have just the little droplets that come down and then the bees can go up in there and they can drink that, but there is no reservoir or trough or anything that the bees can actually drown in. So that is the type of feeder that I would suggest on that. Ken, don't ever install your bees that way. Don't ever. Have I'm not to gonna. I don't ever have to worry about that. I'm sitting there. <laughs> I I am not gonna come fix it. That's the way it was in that tree that we cut down, and you know that that uh, comb was ten or twelve feet long, but no. <laughs> now in the in the igloo ice chest that I got, those comb was just like a top bar you know it was upside down the lid was down bottom was up and they they just like a top bar all the way across and i wished i'd have known that beforehand because they did finally you know me driving it and getting hot and everything they it did uh fall the and, comb broke yeah yeah comb broke comb broke and they absconded um Yes, they did, unfortunately. Um, okay, so back to Rachel. All right, another question. Mm -hmm. I know that doing a rescue recovery job in the winter is not a good idea, but when a tree falls down less than 100 meters from your house, it is a good chance to, it's too good of a chance to pass up to be able to go out and look and learn. 
I now definitely understand why the bee guy from the local council didn't even try and save the tree that fell in our street a few years ago. When the section of the hollow trunk falls from a decent height perpendicular to the lines of comb, it becomes honey pancake time. (laughs) But a significant number of bees managed to avoid getting squished, so we thought we would try and get them out. So... Three middle-aged ladies armed with an electric battery chainsaw, a smoker, and and a smoker did manage to get some section of comb with a little bit of brood, more just as an attractant to the new box since we haven't got any drawn comb and winter is approaching, so something they needed something to clean to, um, even if it just happened to be damaged comb. This morning, there were still a few in the hollow log, but most appeared to have moved into the box that I left on top. I really do not think that the queen survived the fall, which was four days ago now, and definitely didn't see the usual protective clumping around uh, a royal being as I would have expected. So the plan is to add these girls to another log rescue that when I last took did have a queen, but she didn't look flashy, so just hoping that she makes it through the winter, and if not, we get to see what a laying worker colony will look like come spring. As I said, good learning experiences and not what to do. So here are my questions. Number one, how many layers of newspaper with slits in it do you put between boxes? Um, Answer, one. I just put one single layer of newspaper and you just put a couple little slits in it and they will chew through the paper in a matter of a day or two and then kind of merge in with your colony. Question two, considering winter, do you put the box with the queen on the top or the bottom? The weather for the next few weeks is 8 to 20 degrees Celsius, which is 46 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So basically look at your daytime temperatures for the most part, but that's kind of debatable. If the food stores, like if you've got a two-box colony, well, actually, I'm assuming your colony right now is only one box. Um, hmm. All right, so let me rephrase that. It It is a short process. It's really just a matter of two or three days for them to go through and kind of merge with each other and intermingle. So you want the colony with the queen normally to be on the bottom because they need to be able to still come and go. You want the colony that you're combining without the queen to be on the top because you want their only choice of exit as going through the newspaper, through the other box, and out the bottom. That way they integrate with that colony as they chew through the paper and start moving down through there. So that's how you want to initially set that up. Once they've integrated and merged in, then you decide... Is there still enough space for the bees in the single box for winter? If so, just leave them that way and take that other box off and do away with it for the winter. Uh, Next question. Or, she starts off, since they have been queenless and homeless for three to five days, can you just combine them? Um, I would still use the newspaper method just to be safe. Always better safe than sorry because the last thing you want to happen is there's a queen and you didn't notice her or they still... um, are different enough genetically that they still immediately reject the other queen and ball up on her and kill her. So you don't want that to happen, especially getting ready to go into winter. Um, Last question. Since this latest package, quote-unquote, of bees came from only 100 to 200 meters or yards away from the other colony, if they were locked in on the top box and took, question, how many days, to eat through the paper to get out, would they still go back to their old home? Likely not, um, because you have created enough of a distraction for them having to chew through the paper and integrate with the hive, plus they've been locked up for a couple of days. By the time they get out the front, 
excuse me, everything is going to be different and they're going to have to turn around and they're going to have to reorient and it should be fine. Um, so she says, I do understand that the move of three foot or three miles rule, but I was just thinking that if they were locked in for a week with a feeder, that that would affect um, that rule. I can move both boxes to another property that are about three miles away to make it easier if needing and then move them back afterwards. Cheers and looking forward to the show, Rachel. Um, again, I think if you've already had them locked up and then you go through and you do the combined method with the newspaper, by the time they get out of there, they should be fine and they'll orient on that new spot. Um, so, okay. Last question, I believe, and then we're going to move into a couple of last minute little listener suggestions and then we're done for the day. Thank you all for hanging in there with us and, and sorry to rush because I, I do have that appointment. So I'm trying to actually like make it through in a good time. And, and also we don't want to keep Shannon locked in the studio any longer than she has to be. So, um, all right. So our last question comes from Ingrid and Ingrid says, here's a listening listener question. I love the podcast. I live in Northern Florida where we have light winters. I have a flow hive and I want to thank you for not being nasty about them. I have three new colonies that started, or sorry, I have three new colonies started that are looking really great. I check every two weeks like you recommended. I have eight frame regular brood boxes. Um, I know when they have filled 80% of the hive that they should expand. So this is where it get uh, this is where it gets confusing and I get conflicting suggestions. Do I need to put another brood box on top, let them fill it up before I place the flow hive on there? Do I need that much honey food? because I'm in Florida. Also, I'm willing to feed during the winter. So it was suggested that I put the flow hive on top first, let the girls get used to it for a while, then take it off, then put on another brood box or super on top of that, and then eventually put the flow hive back on top of both boxes. That seems like too much space for the bees to me. Also, when do you use the queen excluder? I know that it has to be below the flow hive. Should I give the bees two boxes to expand? Question mark excluder on top of them or put the flow hive on top of the original brood box. Thanks for any help that you may be able to provide. Okay. So even in Florida, this is what I would say for a flow hive. They don't sell it to you this way. They sell you the brood box, which is the deep box. And then they sell you the flow box and a queen excluder. Um, what I would say is if it is your very first year, put your flow hive box itself in storage and call it good. You're going to turn around you're going to set up your brood box and you're going to let them fill that up 80 to 90% full. Then buy yourself a medium or a shallow up to you. Um, but a medium box, you don't need two deeps. Like you said, you're in Florida, you have very light winters. There's a lot of food available. So I would go with a medium box, allow them to draw that out and build that out. And that's your goal for the first year in a flow hive. Then in the second year, Whenever they start going and ramping up really well, you put your queen excluder on top of that medium box, and then you put your flow hive on top of that. And you can do it early enough in the year that they've got plenty of time to get used to it, to go in there and clean it up, but they will put their, their excess honey is going to start in that flow box and they'll fill that down. And then they're going to, you know, backfill into the medium box so that when you extract and you take the flow hive back off for winter, they still have a medium box of food plus their deep box. And that should be sufficient to make it all the way through winter for them, especially if you have light winters. But that is kind of the optimum setup that I would use for that, that type of flow hive box. Um, 
you do still want to make sure that they have their own stores. And what you can wind up with, if you keep them in just an eight frame box deep and you're putting the honey super on there, the flow hive on top of that, and then you're extracting and you take it back away, then they don't have any food for themselves. And, you know, the, the flow hive is not meant to stay permanently. It's meant to be on there during the flow itself. And it's meant to be an easier way to extract the honey out of there. So I would um, I would have that medium box because otherwise you're going to wind up with more chances of them wanting to swarm because they are cramped into that tiny little box. Um, and they do need the extra food for winter just in case, in case there's any long dearths or anything like that. So that is my preferred suggestion. We're not too far off. Um, winter wise, we, we do have, a, it's a little bit colder here than it is there, obviously, but, um, you know, we're a lot closer to you guys than somebody that is in even Oklahoma or further up. So, um, but that's my suggestion. That's kind of what I would say on that. And Ken, we still have to put your flow hive together. <laughs> and in my vast experience of flow hives, I agree 100%. <laughs> There's still time, man. If I got that sucker put together today. We could put it on a hive tomorrow, but today I'm busy. Nope, um, and you both. <laughs> okay, so Ingrid also had a suggestion, and I'm going to throw this. Ingrid and Jacob both had some suggestions. We're going to throw this in here just at the tail end um, to go through and kind of give some people some stuff to think about and look into, and then we will talk about it on the next show next week. Um, maybe. <laughs> so... Ingrid says, have you ever heard of the bee scanning app that helps for mite counts? She heard a gentleman on YouTube talking about it, and she decided to go give it a try. It seemed to work well, but she's not entirely sure of its accuracy. Um, but unfortunately, it did manage to find mites in two of her hives. And it, it goes through and it identifies each individual bee that has the mite on it. And you can zoom in on that bee and look and find the mites. And she said that it she would have never necessarily found them on her own. So... Um, she just listed as the B scanning app for mite counts. So that's probably what you would have to go through and look up. But I was looking at the images that she sent me and I could not identify mites on the bees that it identified. But at the same time, I could only zoom in so far. Um, she said that on the app itself, you know, she had to obviously take a screenshot of the, the main screen, but on the app itself, you can zoom in quite a ways and see them. But the concept of it is you pull a frame of bees out take a picture of that frame with this app. The app goes through and scans the bees, uses some unknown algorithm, probably looking at shape and color, to find a mite. And then it will tag each of the bees and each of the mites that it finds and give you a count so that you can go through and potentially do a mite check without having to shake bees and do a sugar shake or do an alcohol wash. Um, so it could be interesting, and I will. I had not heard of it. But I will definitely look into it, and uh, we will talk about it here on a future episode and give you guys some feedback after I've had a chance to use it. I'll let you know what I think about it. Um, and I think you should try it as well. My, uh, you and Max can get okay. out there, Ken, and go through and give it a shot. Um, and the last final thing here is from Jacob. Jacob just wanted everybody to know um, he wanted to mention the organization B-Check, and he says that they work with Driftwatch which helps the spray companies know about the locations of hives. It covers a lot of different states in the United States, and it's what everybody in Nebraska registers under. So if you hadn't heard of it, he just wanted to let everybody know. I actually had not heard of it, and Texas is, uh, we don't have that here in Texas. Um, they may operate here, but it's not anything that we've ever talked about, even on a state level. 
And so that is, it's a very cool program. We've tried to get something like that set up here for us, but it's in conjunction with the Apiary Inspection Service and with our bee ordinances and laws. And we've had a lot of heartache and trouble dealing with just the political aspects of everything and all the fighting and things that come along with politics. So as of yet, we have not managed to officially get anything like that set up. But our Apiary Inspection Service is set up to where it's voluntary registration. But if you do register with them and they do get notified that something's going on in your area, they can then reach out to you and let you know. Um, but I like this, the whole uh, bee check and uh, drift watch. That's uh, definitely something to look into if they have it in your state. Might be something that you guys want to give a shot and do because, you know, better to be safe than sorry. Better to know if they're going to come out and spray for mosquitoes. You want your hives to be sealed up and closed off so that the uh, the drift and stuff doesn't get in there and kill your entire colony because it can be very, very, very damaging and deadly. And that's it. That's all for our listener question episode. Thank you all for hanging in there with us. Um, Ken, did you manage to stay awake? Sorry, I know I did a lot of talking there. I did. I can't make faces at you or throw things at you when I'm not in the studio, so. (laughs) I am awake. Awesome. Very good. Well, we will have a bonus episode out on Patreon for everybody who is a patron member um, on Thursday. And we'll be back talking to you guys next week. But we are going to wrap this up because I got to get to work. Shannon wants to go home and Ken's got a long drive ahead of him. <laughs> I got a long drive and then I got a, do I need to paint those little top bars or just leave them wood? Well, I just leave mine raw wood. But um, what you do got to do today is go cut me some holes in those inner covers so that I can put jars in them. Yeah, I got that. I got that laid out. I know. I know. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my project for tomorrow, and I really need to do it before June so that there's a chance that they can still get up in there and draw comb in them. Okay. So, all right, everybody. Um, thank you for tuning in. Have a great week, and be good. Be safe and be, be healthy, folks. The show might be over for now, but the steam won't last long. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast as we'll be swarming in with new episodes Mondays of each month. Until then, behave yourselves. 